Eating Tomorrow and the Groundwork Podcast are brought to you by U.S. Soy. The farmers and partners at U.S. Soy are exploring the complex problems and innovative solutions of an interconnected world. Sometimes, even nature needs a little nurture. And that's why Nicely Food Lab made Swags, the cute, curious cube of an egg. With all of the nutrients of the oblong original, squags are easier to peel, easier to store, and six sides of fun. Change things up with unbeatable flavors like ranch, cheddar, and sriracha. Or enjoy our 100% plant-based green squags as part of a healthy, squeaking diet. Pick up a 16-pack of squags at your community pantry or stare directly into the commerce hole and think of the key phrase squags. Squags, part of any square meal. Those poor chickens, I think. Yeah, I haven't worked that out either. <laughs> I mean, like, what problem are these things solving? Well, today we're going to talk a lot about food science. And as you'll hear from experts and adventurers, sometimes it takes an outlandish idea to land somewhere interesting. I'm Amanda. I'm Marshall. Today on Eating Tomorrow, the science of future foods. We'll enter the meat space and turn plastic into steak, cell culture a cup of joe, and serve your DNA just what it's craving. We'll also answer the question, will science be able to replace nature if we take her for granted? Okay, so in order to understand our futuristic eggs, we need to understand that humans have always been enhancing the characteristics of what we eat. As Gregor Mendel awoke one morning in St. Thomas's Abbey, the Augustinian friar didn't immediately check his smartphone. No, those wouldn't be invented for another 150 years. But what he lacked in TikTok, he made up for in peas. And his study of the inherited characteristics of pea plants paved the way for modern agriculture, the kind of innovations that today feed the world. I, I don't mind messing with pea plants. Mm. That makes you a little uncomfortable. No, I'm fine with messing with pea plants. Oh, okay. I'm okay with it. Smartphones have come a long way since the mid-1800s, as has our understanding of genetics. We've leveled up Mendel's selective breeding and are now able to directly alter the genes of food organisms to improve pest and disease resistance, weather environmental conditions, increase nutritional value, and more. There's no denying that the study of genetics and its application in agriculture has saved lives. You can check out Norman Borlaug's contributions to food security. His work developing high-yield crops in unforgiving environments is credited with saving billions of lives from starvation. We are just skimming the surface on this stuff. Look into the Green Revolution. Its advancements and its unintended consequences. It's fascinating. And like many fascinating things, it's, it's complex. The first genetically engineered insulin was produced in 1978 using E. coli bacteria. And with breakthrough tools and techniques, we're doing with food what we've done with medicine. Consumers in Japan can already get genome-edited tomatoes that help support lower blood pressure and promote relaxation. I'm already very strongly pro-tomato. So <laughs> anything you can do to make a tomato more exciting, I'm, I'm all in favor of it. I've, so, I've never been a fan, but, you know, I, I like ketchup. So. Agree to disagree. <laughs> if this causes us to ask ourselves, what might we expect from future enhanced foods? Allergen reduction? non-preservative enhanced shelf life, flavor editing. It can get really weird. We talked to Claire Baumkamp, senior scientist at the Good Food Institute. 
I think of it almost like the concept of meat space. So this multidimensional space where we're just exploring what this could look like. And so there's chicken space and pork space and beef space. And what are the areas sort of in between those or off to the side that could be even better that, you know, if say you've always loved bacon, but wish that it were easy to get it perfectly crispy without having parts that are overcooked, you know, what could we do with the marbling pattern in pork? Once you start playing with texture of things, I think that's a, that's a slippery slope. That's a, yeah, I guess a little weird for me. I mean, I don't, some of the fun of cooking bacon is not knowing how, how it's going to come out when you're done. You're going to get the chewy stuff or you're going to get the crispy stuff. Uh. I don't want smooth bacon. CRISPR is the technology that broke things wide open for scientists, allowing them to edit genomes with crazy precision and flexibility. The name, it's an acronym, stands for Clustered Regularly Interspaced Short Palindromic Repeats and references the naturally occurring defense mechanism found in some bacteria. These bacteria retain the DNA of viruses that target them, and when they encounter these predators, deploy CRISPR-associated proteins called Cas enzymes to snip the virus DNA in half, preventing it from replicating, and probably humiliating it in the process. <laughs> so between the CRISPR DNA sequences and Cas enzymes, specifically the Cas9 enzyme, scientists now have nature's own targeted cut-and-paste genetic tool. It's already shown promise in preventing HIV infection in humans, curing a wide range of genetic disorders, and gussying up Japanese tomatoes. The future of food gets interesting as we explore scientific boundaries first and discover applications later. We caught up with Ben Feltner of Chicago-based startup BHEX in his production facility about his team's work with engineered bacteria. BX is an industrial 3D food printing company that, you know, originated with a goal of creating 3D food printers that were fit for a variety of environments, including space. But space wasn't their only frontier. They've been pushing the boundaries of how our food is produced to and from what. Here he is describing how his team turned plastic into, well, steak. You could take a recyclable bottle and melt it and apply force to it, kind of like a centrifuge or something like that. And from there, you get several products. In the end, you have this liquid, and that liquid can be consumed by a certain type of bacteria. But from there, you let it, you know, evolution takes place, and you're letting the ones that can survive on consuming that plastic product they multiply and consume more of it and multiply and consume more of it. And so then in the end, you have this clump of biomass is what it's called. In theory, to be eaten, it's not yet approved by the FDA. Not quite steak in my book either. But science being science, they prepared and cooked it anyway. It's not yet something for human consumption. Been stressed that it's not approved by the FDA. But we asked him to describe the delicacy. If I were to just explain or describe the way it would taste and smell. It'd be that metallic kind of smell and then a yeasty flavor. And the texture of it, it was like, um, if you've ever had some of the vegan meat products, it had that stretchiness to it with the little bit of crisp from where we had cooked it, but it was way too thick. It was like, I don't know, two and a half inches, three inches thick. So it, the, it was interesting that the heat it didn't cook like a steak usually cooks. 
So it was kind of like a little more mushy kind of like dough in the middle and then kind of a decent product on the outside. <laughs> so that part needs to be refined. So, I mean, what combinations into what? Like, what would you be willing to eat? Like, there's bacteria turned into steak. Would, what would you be willing to eat? I mean, if I don't think about it and it's not a mushy steak, I think it really is the texture of it. I'm going to try not to think about it. Like, if I was on one of those competition shows and they made me eat a bug, mm-hmm. it's the texture of the bug that's going to get me, not the actual. Are you sure about that? Because it's the bug that's going to get me too. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know, like, 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 would you eat like a, a gym sock turned into a sandwich? Does it taste like a sandwich? I would hope, but I don't know. Like, does this steak taste like steak or does this steak taste like bacteria? It doesn't quite taste like a steak yet. And what does bacteria taste like? I mean, I don't know. Take, just take a moment to soak in the fact that yes, this technology already exists. And down the line, this innovation might use bacteria to convert plastic into edible and non-edible products, and who knows what else. An Arctic-cooled breeze washes over the tundra, swaying tall grasses and rustling the canopies of exotic trees. Fortunately, our flank is protected by a thick, shaggy fur that both maintains your warmth and deflects the spear tips of the bipedal hunters that encroach upon your territory. For you are the mighty mammoth. You raise your trunk skyward and let out a majestic trumpet, mercifully unaware that 10,000 years hence you'll be brought back from extinction just to be put on a hoagie. Okay, so cell-cultured meats aren't exactly futuristic anymore, but their application is growing increasingly exotic. Startup Primeval Foods focuses on meats like tiger and zebra, and their fellow industry innovator, Vow, made headlines with a bio-identical mammoth meatball. These cruelty-free alternatives skirt around the ethical and cultural concerns and even challenge the permanence of extinction. Is that gross? Is that fascinating? Is this going to appeal to ethically motivated vegetarians? This seems to check off a lot of boxes. Like if it's ethically sourced, if it's sustainably sourced, like if they can keep doing this without damaging any populations of any animals or without overuse of water for crops and things like that, I feel like this would probably be the way to go. It doesn't doesn't sound gross. I mean, from the movies, we've learned that bringing back Sure. Long dead species mm-hmm. is a bad idea. It's not because great. they come attack you on an island. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a reason. Don't do it. There is a reason. So <laughs> just don't make a live woolly mammoth. It's yet. It's, I yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Meat production is fascinating because it's complicated both scientifically and culturally. But the future is not just about meat. We know that our growing global protein needs will require a mix of traditional and non-traditional meat sources plus protein-rich crops. Researchers in Finland have successfully created cell-cultured coffee that, well, this is from their report, quote, in terms of smell and taste, our trained sensory panel and analytical examination found the profile of the brew to bear similarity to ordinary coffee, unquote. Which, fun fact, was the original tagline for those old Folgers Switch commercials. So, is it coffee or is it cell cultured? Oh, I think this is cell cultured. So like something like Thanksgiving turkey. Is it so precious Ooh. that we won't eat it if it's cell cultured? That's a good, that's a good question. I mean, I don't know. Like I like, 
I like turkey. Does it taste like turkey? Do I need it to be? Do, do you put gravy on it? Like, do I need it to actually have been a walking around bird in order to? I don't like, need that. If the if the chemicals are all the same, if the basic structure and elements of it are all the same, nitrogen, oxygen, carbon, all that good stuff, then it's turkey, I guess. Tur- if it's turkey goodness and there's gravy Look, on it, I'm I fine with it. I eat cranberry sauce out of the can, so I'm not really a also, one. I do. Yeah, like that's I my favorite too. cranberry yeah, agreed. sauce. So maybe, you know, I don't know. For me, I can grow the bird. I mean, I can't, but someone can grow a bird in a lab and I can put gravy on it. It's going to be delicious. I'll put it like this. There are tons of foods that I've probably eaten that were 100% totally created in a lab. (laughs) So I don't know if I can really complain about a lab-created turkey. (laughs) Sure, there might be some acceptance barriers to future foods, but these are new territories. Sushi used to be almost unheard of in America. Same with cheese made from you know, human bacteria. But synthetic biologist Christina Agapakis and her collaborator Cecil Tolas did just that for their Science Meets Art project, Self Made. About their work, Agapakis writes, quote, many of the stinkiest cheeses are hosts to species of bacteria closely related to the bacteria responsible for the characteristic smells of human armpits or feet, unquote. So they took swabs of those parts, plus hands and noses, and introduced the microflora to fresh, pasteurized, organic whole milk, et voila, fromage, in what might be the ultimate form of personalized food. So here's a question for you, Marshall. If you could eat anybody's cheese, living or dead, who would it be? Um, ooh, anybody's cheese, living or dead. This is... There's no good answer to this there's question. There's not a there's not one <laughs> good answer nor is there a good reason for any answer you give. <laughs> there is no, so I've I don't uh, my mom, I don't know. Oh god. <laughs> As I was asking it, I was like this is a terrible question. So horrible. <laughs> Friday night on the International Space Station could only mean one thing, pizza night. After a spirited game of zero-G rock-paper-scissors, flight engineer Simonov makes the polarizing choice of pineapple and pepperoni. The food printer whirs to life, extruding a circular pattern of ingredients and a nutrient supplement formulated to help the astronauts reduce muscle loss. Absent-mindedly, overworked payload specialist Bean cracks open a beer. The pressure rockets him through the hull and into the vacuum of space. Poor Bean. Back on Earth, you were probably exposed to the Food Guide Pyramid growing up. The USDA introduced the visualization of food groups as a way of understanding and guiding eating habits. Critics called it oversimplified, over or under indexing on certain food groups, or even influenced by the food industry. It's since been reworked as my pyramid and then my plate with each iteration aiming to be more intuitive and more personalized. But they don't hold a candle to the personalizing power of nutrigenetics. Nutrigenetics is the science that brings uh, individual inherited characteristics to the field of nutrition. And nutrigenetics tries to fill that gap between one size uh, fits all and we do the individual justice. 
That's Dr. Martin Kohlmeyer, professor of nutrition with the University of North Carolina's Nutrition Research Institute. His work in nutrient-gene interactions could fundamentally change our relationship with food. He compares it to the way that clinical medicine approaches individual treatment of illnesses. When we use antibiotics in clinical medicine, we don't give everybody antibiotics. We first figure out what is the microbe that causes a problem and then select the prescription to what is needed for the individual. So we're really expanding classical approaches in clinical medicine to nutrition, where the assumption is the patient will be doing better if we understand what they need. Beyond precision nutrition, this field aims to assess, prevent, and treat a host of diet-related health issues. He gives a compelling example in a 2019 interview in Eating Well. A middle-aged man with an enlarged liver is under doctor's orders to get more exercise and change his diet. So, among other things, he cuts down on eggs and meat. But still, his condition worsens. Here comes nutrigenetics. A DNA test would show his body doesn't synthesize choline well. And when reducing his intake of eggs and meat, he significantly reduced his intake of choline. The absence of choline can cause fatty liver disease or, in this case, made things worse. He makes an interesting observation about flavor acceptance, too, and how we're sometimes eliminating the very thing that makes some foods good for us. So uh, we pretty much uniformly accept that broccoli is a healthy food. And uh, what a lot of people don't like about it is its bitterness. And the bitterness is due to these compounds that are actually helpful, that make it helpful for our metabolism. Unfortunately, industry has now developed varieties that don't taste bitter anymore. And there goes your helpful bioactive, the compound that really makes, uh, makes it worthwhile. If you continue taking out these healthful compounds, you might as well eat cardboard. Dr. Kohlmeyer says that the relationship between genetics and flavor disposition is so tight that in 2,000 years, they'll be able to dig you up and know whether or not you liked broccoli. But frankly, I'd prefer if they just left it a mystery. So then how can an industry support individualized production? How does this increased reliance on DNA for health play in privacy concerns or exploitation? Is my health insurer going to ding my policy if I eat a counter-genetic meal? Like, I'm lactose intolerant. Mm -hmm. You upset that I had some pizza? I mean, they they kind of already do it a little bit with other things with insurance. They ask you if you're a smoker or do you drink alcohol. But you want these things to help you. So as long as this information is being used for benevolent reasons— Yeah. It's okay, but can we protect ourselves in this case? Do you want everyone or certain people to know what your genetic profile is and such that they know what you are supposed to eat? Like, I don't know if you want everyone to know that. That should feels like it should be a personal thing. I don't know if I should be eating as much bread as I do, but I sure love a sandwich. (laughs) (laughs) All of these genetic tweaks and cell cultures and foot cheeses are just experiments until they can get to your plate. Particularly in the case of hyperpersonalization, our food production infrastructure just doesn't support that kind of thing. Yet. 
Our friend Ben Feltner doesn't just turn plastics into steak, he turns pizza goo into pizza pizza with 3D food printing technology, a tech that may also help our food production in space. Let's use sustainable, like powdered, uh, different foods from Earth, take them on the spacecraft, we get to save money on the weight. We get to save weight overall uh, on that mission by using dehydrated foods. And then we'll rehydrate them uh, with a renewable source of uh, liquid and 3D print whatever they want. And so we could control the number of calories and the different macro and micronutrients and flavor. Our very own show sponsors have their hat in the space race. NASA and student scientists have seen promise growing soy in simulated Martian environments. And because its byproducts can produce things like plastics and lubricants, they could be used to create new machines on Mars, plus the means to keep them running smoothly. When might this go from NASA technology to nanotechnology? (laughs) When, if ever, would we have access equality to personalized nutrition? Is it at-home food extruders for the rich and community kit for the rest of us? So personalized nutrition bars don't exactly address the joy of eating. In other episodes, we talk about the way those things will eventually intersect. The meal you want contains the nutrition you need. Sooner it may be a matter of supplementing what we do eat with what we should. So, Marshall, did you think we'd make it through this episode without a meal and a pill? Amanda, no, not at all. (laughs) Precision Health Companies like routine, inch toward that particular future with what they call the smart vitamin. With a DNA analysis and vitamin and mineral test, they formulate a custom dosage of up to 20 nutrients designed to meet your specific sleep or stress or performance goals. They even track your body changes and tweak your formulation over time. Okay, there's some groundwork. So what can we do about it? How can we bring intention to the future science of food rather than just eat its outcomes. One of the things Ben mentioned was some people's innate resistance to this technology. Like, is there plastic in this steak? And while no, there isn't, it speaks to the importance of consumer acceptance of these novel food production methods before they'll be a part of our food security future. Are these technologies in conflict with return to the earth movements and indigenous diets? What kind of cultural lines could we be crossing with this kind of thing? Dr. Baumkamp had some ideas about being fearless in our learning and finding your personal role in the solution. There's a lot of um, opportunity for new people to get involved in the industry. So not it's not just a, a science problem. It's not just a business problem. But, you know, we, we really need people in a lot of different fields to kind of come together and sort of build this new field from the ground up. So that brings me back to thinking about those eggs, the square eggs at the beginning of our episode here. What about that makes us uncomfortable? Is it hopeful that you can have this product and it be more convenient? I mean, I feel it, it's, it is hopeful in the sense that, well, this will make food production easier. It's, but it's innovative. It's still scary, though. It's just like it's weird sciencey stuff. It's weird and sciencey. Yeah, I so just it want my be egg weird. to be an egg. <laughs> how, do right. you crack, how do you crack a square egg? <laughs> Carefully. <laughs> There's a lot of questions here. How can we keep up with the pace of discovery? How do we prepare ourselves not just for technological but ethical impacts? How might we help make this future fairly distributed? 
it's important that we look at educational links, that we look to food science curators to see what the latest innovations are. Also, there are plenty of ethical debates. So let's read those neutral perspectives to know sort of both sides of this. And on a community level, let's all get involved and see what we can do to propel the future of food. Special thanks to Dr. Martin Kohlmeyer, Professor of Nutrition with the University of North Carolina's Nutrition Research Institute. Ben Feltner, COO at BHEX. Dr. Claire Baumkamp, Senior Scientist at the Good Food Institute. This is Eating Tomorrow and the Groundwork Podcast, a new kind of story about the future of food and how we'll make it. Brought to you by U.S. Soy. <laughs>